Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. I want to share some thoughts on the global impact of the war in Ukraine. And I grew up in Europe in the days of the Cold War, and I was on the west side of the Iron Curtain, where I lived in freedom. I could say and read what I wanted. And once I was 18, I could vote in free and fair elections. And then on the other side of the Iron Curtain were the communist countries of the Warsaw Pact. There were no democracies. So if anyone claims that the people liked the regimes that they lived in there, there's no way to check that statement, whether it's right or not. But when the reins of terror were loosened, the countries left the Warsaw Pact and the communist ideology and the Moscow-based rule as soon as they could. So I guess that is an indication where the people were more happy and more prosperous and lived happier lives. And then two years later, 1991, the Soviet Union itself started to fall apart. Then a period of hope started. In the 1990s, we believed that liberal democracies had proven to be both morally and economically the most successful system in the world. Even though it had many flaws, we just couldn't think of a better one. So like Churchill has said many decades before us, already in, in 1947, he said many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all-wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. And just two years before, he had won the war but then just months later, he had lost the elections to the Labour government that came in in the summer of 1945 in the UK. Now, some of the countries that managed to escape the yoke of a totalitarian system managed to quickly transform into, into thriving democracies. And they joined the EU and NATO, or just one of those, and choices that were democratically supported by the majority of their populations. And what I remember from the Cold War days is, is mainly the idea of MAD, mutually assured destruction. Of course, MAD was crazy, but the threat that you could lose all you had led to a somewhat stable, although still dangerous situation. And I remember a cartoon in those days, and I think I saw it for the first time when I was at high school, of two guys that have their hat in a guillotine and both holding the rope of the other man's guillotine. So drop your rope, and just seconds later, your own destruction is guaranteed too. It's pretty mad indeed. And I was born 20 years after the Second World War, and I never ever expected to see a brutal invasion of another democratic European country by another less so democratic country. How wrong I was. On the 24th of February, 2022, when this happened, this invasion of Ukraine, that will be another day that will live in infamy. It will be a new chapter in the World Book of History and future historians will be puzzled to explain how this could have happened. I read a lot about it, but don't fully understand Putin's motivation nor his miscalculation. But I'm saying here, Putin, since it's not the will of the people of Russia, I'm not speaking about Russia, Russia's invasion, it's Putin's invasion. Nor did I ever get a chance to get independent information about the world they live in. So since the Russians never had free press, it's difficult 
for them to know what they support if they are supporting it. And we see many people in Russia that are not supporting the invasion. I believe this weekend there are at least 20 cities, if I remember reading it correctly, where Russian people were protesting this brutal war. And one of the things that I wonder now is what the impact on the world will be. We read a lot about the impact of the sanctions uh, and the impact that they will have on Russia. Sanctions that have been imposed by a remarkable unified West and not just West, countries from all over the world. A unified position that we in the West were never able to achieve in the EU ourselves on, on anything. We always disagree and which is one of the beauties of democracy. But here we are, united in our condemnation. Democracies always need some time before they really say that an act of aggression has gone too far. Even the occupation of Czechoslovakia wasn't enough to fight Hitler, nor was the rape of Nanking or, uh, enough to fight Japan, and nor was, let's say, the attack on the USS Cole enough to go for an all-out war on terror. Democracies don't like to hit back. Democracies don't like to hit. Democracies prefer status quo and they prefer peace and quiet. But the invasion of Ukraine was a trigger for unified action. Not war, but unified sanctions. So now a question is how both the Russian war and the sanctions that countries around the world have imposed on Russia, how they will impact the world that we know. And it will likely cause now a downgrade by the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, uh, in their global economic growth forecast. The Ukraine crisis is another shock to the world economy that was just emerging from the coronavirus, uh, the, the, the pandemic. And we already had to deal with all these global supply chain disruptions that, that all of you also have experienced in your own lives. And, and on top of that, we already saw the high inflation, all of us have seen that as well. And then in January, so before the invasion of, of Ukraine, the IMF had already reduced its estimated close, gro global growth rate uh, for this year from, it, it, it was in previous projections, uh, nearly 5%, 4.9, and they dropped it to 4.4. So already half percentage was off. And um, uh, it, 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 it reflects <clears throat> the showdowns in the United States and China. And now I need to drink some water because I'm talking so much. Mm. But that was January. So now the surging prices for energy and other commodities, so, so like corn and metal and, and input that you need for fertilizers and semiconductors, etc., they will now come in many countries on top of a very high inflation. And I already recently spoke about the impact on energy supply. And thanks, Donald, but I'll let me finish this and, and, and then uh, join in a few minutes. So I already spoke about the the impact on the energy supply in, in one of these recent uh, talks, I guess that was last week on Sunday night, and also discussed it with Alistair Doyle um, in our uh, Thursday podcast. Uh, but one thing I want to look on now is the food security, and not not just for the West, but but worldwide. And I, I was just writing about it, and and I started with the quote of Marie Antoinette, who um, uh, is famous for a quote: "Let them eat cake." When the population outside Paris, near Versailles, was um, uh, was complaining that they had no food to eat. Um, the 
story seems to be completely fake, like many quotes uh, that that, uh, that that are known for historians. Just yesterday, I was writing about a quote by Abraham Lincoln, which also wasn't a quote of Abraham Lincoln. Um, so historians believe this is very unlikely. Marie Antoinette was, uh, unlike her reputation, she was, of course, uh, spending uh, lots of money and living an extremely luxurious life, but she donated generously to all kinds of charitable uh, causes and, and she showed a lot of sensitivity towards the poor, something I didn't know. I found that out when I was reading about her. And on top of that, this Latin ate a cake, a cake story was by the time of the French Revolution already more than 100 years old and it had already been said about all kinds of other royalty. But it illustrates the relationship between food and conflict. Hunger may trigger uprisings or war, that may lead to further food shortages. And last week, protests erupted in Iraq's impoverished southern provinces over the rise in food prices. And then the Iraqi officials attributed these to the war in Ukraine. And this is something that we might see a lot more in the months to come, that uh, the war in Ukraine will be blamed for higher food prices. So how is this relationship? And I have, for, for those that have followed uh, those of you that have followed me a bit more over the past years, I've worked a lot on uh, planetary security issues. So the, the impact of planetary change, climate change, biodiversity loss, etc., on uh, security. And one of those aspects is the relationship between food prices and conflict. A very interesting study is uh, by a guy named Marco Laghi, uh, now already 10 years ago. And he looked right after the, what we then called the Arab Spring, which was in, in spring, of course, in 2011. Uh, just a couple of months later, he dived into this relationship. And he created a fascinating graph where he um, plotted the, um, uh, the, the World uh, Food Price Index uh, as uh, created by the FAO. And he plotted that over about 10 years. And there were two huge spikes, one in uh, 2011 and one in a few years earlier in 2008. And then what he did, he plotted on that graph uh, food uprisings, or actually in general uprisings all over the world. And it's very interesting that once the uh, global uh, food price index goes over a certain threshold, I believe it's 200 on top of my head, um, then you see that there's a remarkable increase in uprisings all over the world. So... He was not saying that there's a one-on-one -on -one relationship. There's countries where food is expensive. I guess in a country like Japan or Norway, food is really expensive, but there's no uprisings. And you can easily find countries where there's cheap food and there's no uprisings. Um, but there is a very interesting uh, pattern. And um, so it suggests that there is uh, not only long-term standing political failings that, that create uprisings, but also uh, certain desperate traits of, of vulnerable uh, populations. So it's, it's likely more a trigger that comes 
on top of uh, of all kinds of other things that are wrong in a certain country. So this graph is as convincing as uh, as the Rowan poet's uh, juveniles remark about the importance of bread and circuses, or bread and, and bread and games, or bread and plays. I don't know in what form you know it to gain power or to to stay in part or in, in power. So the, the the people need bread. If you don't give them bread, you get into trouble. So the relationship is, however, um, still a source of considerable debate. So just. Only a few years later, the new security beat, which is which is really good on these issues, they, they wrote that um, this uh, relationship is is way too simple, and uh, that there are many more nuances needed. And I guess the the truth is somewhere in the middle. I I believe that uh, that there is a linkage, but uh, you should never. Uh, uh, never say that there's some kind of automatic link. Not that Lagie ever um, claimed that there was direct link. He already had uh, put in all kinds of um, uh, all, all kinds of, let's say, cushioning in, in the statement uh, that he made. So um, the relationship works both ways. So lack of food can lead to social unrest, but uh, a conflict uh, has often also induced food security like we will likely see now that uh, conflicts in Ukraine will have. So gaining access to another country's land and their water and food uh, production was throughout history often a source of war. Countries just, let's in, say in the Middle Ages, you just invaded the neighboring country because you wanted their, their land and you wanted their food. Now, future historians will likely argue for, for forever to what extent Putin's invasion of Ukraine may have been motivated by food security. Uh, Ukraine was often known as the breadbasket of Europe. And according to, to the um, uh, CIA factbook, Ukraine produced 25% of all the agricultural output in the former Soviet Union. Now, well, there's never one cause for war and food security doesn't seem to be his main motivation for the invasion, at least I have not read it anywhere. Uh, there's a lot of speculation of all his other motivations for the invasion, but I wonder it may have played a role for him having um, having been grown up in, in the Soviet Union and knowing that Ukraine was so essential for such a large aspect of the food. It may have played a role in his nostalgia for um, for the former Soviet Union. Well, and then continuing on the international aspects of the food conflict uh, relationship, uh, I think the near future looks bleak. I mean, hunger was already rising in the past few years. So during in these two years of the pandemic, uh, we already saw more than 160 million people uh, are now extra suffering from hunger than before that. So we now have a total of 821 million people uh, that, that, that experience hunger. And that is, that is a staggering amount. Uh, that is, that is uh, far more than 10% of the world population is, is, is hungry. Um, last week, the chairman of the, the Committee on World Security, World Food Security, which, which is part of the, of the UN, warned that this Russian invasion of Ukraine will heavily impact the availability and also the prices of food. Uh, Russia and Ukraine combine for nearly a third of the world's 
wheat and barley exports. And wheat is, for instance, the, the, the staple crop of, of the Middle East. It was in uh, 2011, the rise in the wheat prices coming from Ukraine and Russia and Kazakhstan and also, by the way, uh, Australia, that all experienced very bad harvest and therefore they didn't expect, uh, export wheat anymore. And that's why the prices were spiking so much and that you saw all these these revolutions taking place that in some of these countries, especially in the Levant and Syria, that there was this prolonged uh, drought that played an extra role, but the main trigger was uh, was the failed harvest in, in Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan in those days. So Ukraine is also a major supplier of corn, and it's, it's also the global leader in sunflower oil. You see the sunflowers coming back as a national symbol of, of Ukraine, um, and that sunflower oil is, is used in all kinds of food processing. So compared to a week before the Im- invasion, Wheat prices have now surged 55%. So it's already more than 50% increase um, uh, in, in, in these less than, than three weeks that, uh, that this horrible war is going on. And food prices were already at their highest level since 2001. Remember 2001, where food prices um, were playing a significant role as one of the causes uh, or a better trigger to say, or catalyzer uh, for the Arab Spring that I just uh, spoke about. So uh, the the uh, the war may reduce now food supplies. It's likely that in times of uncertainty and less food supplies, food prices will will further rise. Uh, this is just on top of all the the horror that we already witnessed and all the com- complexities that we see. This is an extra extra factor to keep in mind, and that might actually. Uh, increase. I will talk for a few more minutes and then then go to to Joshua. Um, rising food prices are one of the global impacts of the war in Ukraine. But take an example. Let's look at Bangladesh. Uh, it imports half of its wheat from Ukraine and Russia. And recently, I wrote already about compounded risks of several global crises. And uh, to stay with the example of Bangladesh. This Delta nation is one of the worst victims of climate change, with millions under threat of losing their homes and land because of not only the rising sea levels, but also the salinity that is that is uh, creeping up. So already now, before the impact of of uh, Ukraine uh, is 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 even hitting them, already literally thousands of people have decided today and thousands of people will decide tomorrow that this is their very last day on the coastline. They will pack their belongings, leave the coast and start a very uncertain future in mostly in in, in the outskirts of, of the country's capital of Dhaka. So besides the impacts of food shortages on global food ri- prices, the Ukraine conflict also risks a lack of focus on other problems in the world. So what happens is that World leaders are now so much focused on Ukraine that there simply isn't time to focus on anything else. And that's the same for, for financial aid and, and, and for attention for refugees and any aspect that you look at. Uh, there's just world leaders are not capable to, to, to put out so many fires at the same time. So we are dealing with these compounded risks that make already existing risks Worse, and I'm I'm sure you're aware 
of the situation in, in Ukraine. But for instance, who has followed the current situation in Somalia? I was reading about it today. I wasn't aware about it either. And I really read a lot every day. Um, and uh, if I, as someone who has so much time to read, uh, don't even know about is how would the world leaders pay attention to Somalia? But four million people are at the risk of starving, according to the United Nations. The situation is deteriorating rapidly and after three years of hardly any rain the food situation was already pretty bad uh, and on top of that there were these crises in Tigray and Yemen and Afghanistan that also needed attention but now according to the UN humanitarian coordinator in Somalia he says and I'll quote him here now Ukraine seems to suck out all the oxygen that's in the room and uh, that is very much what is happening now. So conflicts often lead to food shortages, which often lead to further conflicts. And as a result, many people in institutions and governments worldwide make spend their lives, make their careers on trying to break this deadly cycle. And they try to improve agriculture, give education, work together with countries and companies and local populations to provide better food and therefore also contribute to peace. But unfortunately, there are people in this world that just choose to, to, as I wrote earlier today, to kick this wheel of an unfortune uh, without caring for a second about the human consequences of their game of risk that they are playing. Um, they just invade another country and the impact in that country and elsewhere on the planet is not in their mind. I find this incredible to think that people can do these kind of things. And I'm still in a state of shock, uh, even uh, two and a half weeks after this brutal invasion happened. I see uh, Joshua, uh, I, would, I would love to hear your question or comment. You have to... Game of risk also. So I'm a little bit confused about what's going on. Um, I'm curious where you see this kind of fitting in from us going back to Victory Garden since you brought us all the way back to World War II. I, I missed one little thing. Bring it back to you said Victory, what? Victory Gardens? Yeah, Victory Gardens. Okay, so that and people were growing we their own food yeah. in their backyards. Um, yeah. yeah, well, I, I guess, okay, my guess is that um, for, let's say, the people in Western Europe and in America, the food situation will not be so dire that uh, that people might move that way. Although I encourage everybody to grow your own food in your garden, which I believe would be, we should have a lot of production of both energy and food um, as well as clean water uh, closer to our homes uh, as, as a future movement. But uh, in Ukraine, anything is possible now. Uh, but I guess nobody is planning long term of 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 growing anything. People are now just fighting to to stay alive. And but then in countries um, like I mentioned, like uh, Somalia and Tigray and Bangladesh and, and and Afghanistan, other countries I mentioned, I I guess this will not trigger that change because the people that are at the poor end of the spectrum already try to grow whatever they can. The problem is that um, often the situations are such that they can't. So that is either um, 
changing climate, uh, more drought, especially, or so much floods that it 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 um, it it flows the, the ground away, or it is population pressure, uh, which uh, which makes that um, there's 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 simply no room to grow food, or it is the economic system or um, a, a bad system of governance uh, that makes it difficult. But yeah, you you uh, it. It, the it's idea the, is good. Bad, I mean, I, I remember reading the about the Liberty Gardens. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's the bad system of governments all over the world that we're dealing with here, right? Um, so, in regards to this being climate based, like we've known about that for sixty years, so we've been going down the wrong road for sixty years. Um, so we're turning more into military-industrial mm-hmm. conquest to address the thing that we've known that's been the problem for sixty years, which has been petroleum. We've known it for longer than that. Um, but we're continuing down that road. So would it be such a bad thing if we go to a Cold War 2.0 where everybody just slows down and does their own research on the future as opposed to killing each other right next door? Well, you connect here uh, two things. Uh, I can agree on slowing down. I would never agree on on that it's a good thing to move into, into a Cold War, nor do I believe, by the way, in... Uh, in reducing world trade, uh, and uh, I mean now we do this because of because of sanctions, because this is such such a, a brutal break with with all international law as we know. Um, but uh, so <laughs> you you connect two things that I that I would not connect. I, I I'm I'm very much against moving into a, a new cold war mode, although I. I see at this moment that uh, where most of the countries in the world are united in their condemnation and and in in agreeing on sanctions, I I believe we have no other choice at this moment. But I would not propagate uh, any war, a cold war or a hot war in any way. But coming back to your earlier point on what you said about climate change, yes, we, we could have known 60 years ago. There was actually a movie in the 1950s where... Uh, a scientist is explaining it's 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 a it's a, it's a Hollywood movie, but there's a scientist explaining to somebody exactly about sea level rise and 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 the cause of of that because of burning uh, burning too much carbon. Um, so we we could have known then. We certainly we should have known after what is it uh, 1986 when I think it's 86 or 88 when when Jim Hansen. James Hansen was um, uh, was uh, telling the Senate in America, so the most powerful and most impactful country in the world, their people's representatives were told by one of the most eminent scientists in the world exactly what was going on, and his predictions were, were completely correct. From that moment onwards, uh, the world should have taken action, and uh, we didn't. We, we, we kept kicking the can down the road and uh, we've been really really bad in in taking action it's now only now that climate change becomes so visible to to it was visible already for if, if you really looked for it but now it's visible even if you don't look for it and that's only since about five years or so and you see that that governments are uh, becoming more active now i hope that um somehow if normally never anything positive comes from a war, but if if there is one indirect kind of positive impact, it might be that now that 
in Western Europe, we're really going rapidly for um, independence of fossil fuels from Russia. That part of the plan uh, is to, to massively invest in more renewables. And, um, and that in itself is a positive development. I, I wish we would have taken that, that there, there would not, there should not have been a war that was necessary to push us in that direction. I'm curious, what is your familiarity with modern monetary theory and how it essentially the government spend money into existence and they can choose what they spend it on or we should be choosing what we spend it on, really? No, I leave that to you. Tell me about modern monetary uh, theory. So essentially, I mean, I guess it's uh, furthering a branch of economics. It, I mean, to me, it's not new, I guess. Uh, but... Uh, I get this from Pitchfork Economics, which is out of Seattle, um, Civic Ventures. Um, he's actually a billionaire, so it's kind of interesting that he's doing this. Um, but uh, looking at modern monetary theory, it's a matter of everything's a number on a spreadsheet now, right? So we mm -hmm. just decide how big the numbers get and where we spend the biggest number and who gets that, which one of our crony friends, you know, if you have crony friends. Um, get that money to do what they think is the best thing for the world, right? And we believe now, I think that 97% of scientists at least believe that climate change is real. We're now seeing that it is real uh, and real. No, time. I have to correct you there. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's 100% of all the climate scientists in the world and they don't believe okay. it, they know it. Well, that's better, right? <laughs> Modern monetary theory would say that if we know that this is the problem, that's what we redirect our resources towards is solving that problem now as quickly as possible. Yeah. Because we well, can do it. We just have to choose to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm not into uh, into uh, modern monetary theory, but if that's the conclusion, then I'm a, then I'm a big supporter. I have to read into this. But yeah, so this this is uh, the problem now is that we've been uh, so slow in taking climate action that we now have uh, a lot of uh, really urgent and really existential problems on our desk at the same time. Uh, so we're we're dealing already with uh, with with climate change. We have to deal with um, uh, the, the the loss of biodiversity, loss of nature. We have to deal with Plastic pollution in the ocean, as I said in an earlier broadcast, we all eat one credit card a week of plastic. Um, and on top of that, we have the pandemic. Uh, we may get new pandemics in, in the future. We will get new pandemics in the future, but we may get uh, increased pandemics in, in the future at a higher frequency or severity. Um, and then we have uh, still, yeah, the way that we govern our planet. Uh, after 2000 years, we still don't have a system that we can do that without wars, obviously. So um, our our leaders have quite a bit on their plate. You still there? I lost you. And oh, I lost, I, oh, oh no, you. you didn't lose. I just I didn't have much more to say at this point. I wanted to give other people airtime. Uh, okay. I mean, there was Tom a, Brady. There Tom was Brady came out of. Oh, Tom Brady came out of retirement today, so maybe we're going to get back to bread and circuses. Okay.
Yeah, let's uh, let's let's see what happens there. I just saw Donald uh, raising his hand, but he left us. Um, maybe I was talking too much. Um, is there anybody else that has a comment? Because otherwise, I'm going to uh, to stop this one and I'm going to take a break because I've been working all day and it's a Sunday. Um, but if anybody still has a question, I don't see it. I know that some of you have been listening from Europe. Uh, I admire that. You guys should go to sleep. I hope just you uh, you enjoyed this. Uh, thank you, Joshua, for uh, for your question. Thank you, Gary and Rudy and Bradley for joining as well. I hope that you will follow me and that you will follow the news. I will be back already tomorrow, by the way. Uh, tomorrow at 11 o'clock Eastern Time which is um, only a five-hour difference nowadays with Europe because we already put the clock ahead here. So for the next two weeks, um, it's only a five-hour difference. Um, so that is uh, four o'clock in the afternoon for those in, uh, in Europe in Central Time. And uh, it's, uh, it's uh, tomorrow the news uh, together with, uh, um, uh, with Vanessa Champion. And then on Thursday... Uh, there will be the show with uh, Alastair again. Thank you guys so much for, for listening and I hope to see many of you back tomorrow. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.